I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 16 in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. Having gone decidedly meta thus far in his letter, Paul now zooms in on the nitty-gritty of life in the church, how relationships should function between the Christians in Colossae, husbands and wives, parents and children, even slaves and masters. But to understand the radically subversive nature of Paul's simple commands, we need a bit of context. In September of 2020, author and pastor Tim Keller published this fascinating article called A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. And in it, he recognized and identified a spectrum on which one could plot what he argued are the four mainstream views of justice. So it begins on the left with hyper-individualism, uh, uh, the hyper-individualism of libertarianism, and then it moves to the right toward the hyper-collectivism of postmodernism. I realize it's a whole bunch of fancy words, but libertarianism, he argues, defines justice according to personal freedoms. And postmodernism, all the way on the other side, defines justice according to who in society has the power. In the last year and some change, this has become more and more a household conversation. In his article, Keller observes that according to postmodernism, and this is a long quote I'm going to read you guys, if you are white, male, straight, cisgendered, then you have the highest amount of power. If you are none of these at all, you are the most marginalized and oppressed, and there are numerous categories in the middle. Most importantly, each category toward the powerless end of the spectrum has, in this view, a greater moral authority and a greater ability to see the way things truly are. Only powerlessness, again in this view, and oppression brings moral high ground and true knowledge. Therefore, those with more privilege must not enter into any debate. They have no right or ability to advise the oppressed, blinded as they are by their social location. They simply must give up their power. But, he points out, Eventually, this becomes deeply incoherent. He goes on to write this. Again, a long quote, bear with me. If all people with power who call this shots socially, culturally, economically, and control public discourse inevitably use it for domination, then if any revolutionaries were able to replace the oppressors at the top of the society, why would they not become people that should subsequently be rebelled against and replaced themselves? What would make them different? And this is a question worth asking, regardless of any conscious or subconscious socio-political leaning that anyone in this room might have, human beings are inclined to ask questions about power. Who has power? What does power do? And what do we do with it? Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we are steady cruising through our summer-long study of one first-century letter that we now call Colossians. Up until now, Paul, the letter's author, has been building out these extraordinary meta-concepts about transforming the heart and the mind in light of Jesus and the kingdom of God, and he uses those concepts again and again to urge the Christians in Colossae to faithfully commit to the church, to be there, to be present, to participate in the family of God. See, he was writing to a little church of new Christians that was made up for the first time in the Christian movement of both Jewish and Gentile disciples of Jesus, and they were facing their first incidents of cultural pressure to abandon the way of Jesus. It happened then, as it happens now, people come to faith in Jesus, and then eventually, if not immediately, opposition sets in. 
the world around the new disciple begins to suggest or insist that the teachings of Jesus must be altered or updated or else abandoned altogether. So Paul, who was in prison at the time for practicing the way of Jesus, advancing the way of Jesus, he writes to this little church and he pleads with them, don't do it. Don't budge, don't compromise, don't sell out. Keep all your faith and focus on Jesus. Keep Him ever before you. Keep coming together as a church, as a community. You can't do it by yourself. Don't quit. Don't flake. Don't bail out. Don't budge. Don't compromise. Don't sell out. Now, in tonight's text, he's going to zoom in on some specific outworkings of the kind of day-to-day life and the standard relationships between the Christians and Colossae and how the way of Jesus should frame and guide them. I'm going to warn you guys. It's going to get weird right off the bat, and we're going to have to do some work to figure it out. You guys okay? You up for it? Great. Thank you. Okay, don't check out. Stay with me. Now, would you guys stand together as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture? Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 18. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, It is the Lord, the Messiah you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Then chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Whew! These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. So, a few loaded terms and ideas in there. What the heck is up with all this? Here, we have the earliest instance of Christian household regulations in the New Testament. Now, the Jesus movement, what we call the church with a capital C, was and is and has always been a complicated network of overlapping relationships. Following Jesus, I say it all the time, it cannot be done in isolation apart from the accountability and shared life of community. Don't believe me? Try and obey the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom of God, in isolation. You can't do it because it's all about relationships. Community is all about relationships. The church, Christianity, relationships. And within community, there are different kinds of relationships. So look at our church, for example. In this tiny church, there are, right here in this room, old friends, new friends, uh, people who were friends before church, and people who became friends through church. There are siblings, parents of young children, lots of them, parents of grown children. There are in-laws, family by blood, family by marriage. There are husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. There's co-workers in this room, collaborators, employers, employees, and they all intersect in the church. So here's an example. Eric Tabanowski, he's not here because he's off gallivanting at the coast or something. I don't know. He's doing it. This is a valid reason. <laughs> and he's not here to hear me pick on him. Eric Tabanowski, known by those who love him as Tab, you know, like the cola. He's a friend of mine. 
we met many, many years ago, but probably the thing that forced us into each other's lives is the fact that for many years, his wife Heather has been close friends with my wife Abby. Heather's sister is Megan. Megan and Kyle and their kids are in a Van City community, our version of a small group, with Scott and Kristen Barguer. Scott Barguer is an elder or an overseer of Van City, which means, among other things, that he helps lead and take spiritual responsibility for the church, as is Tab. So Tab shares the responsibility of overseeing the church with the close friend of the guy who married his wife's sister. Now, you could play a great version of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with Van City. Six Degrees of Van City, using anyone who goes to our church. Believe me, you can get there. It is a real small-town world around here. And the first churches were also small networks of overlapping and interconnected relationships. Thus, just as Jesus' core teaching was about relationships, so much of Paul's writing zeroes in on the specifics of how disciples of Jesus were to navigate relationships common to the world of the first century, which is good. This is the nitty-gritty practical stuff. Ideas like these, the household regulations, they're not exclusive to Colossians. They show up in Ephesians and 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, all over the New Testament. And they went on to become a fixture of Christian writing in the first century in the early church. Again, this makes sense. There's lots of people, lots of relationships. You need to know how to work this stuff out. Now, all that said, a passage like this one doesn't exactly lift right off the page for modern sensibilities. There is a bit of interpretation work that we have to do before we can ask ourselves how to put what Paul is saying into practice. Now, if you've been here more than once, I'm sure you've gathered by now that our church is very, very big on the Bible because we believe that Jesus was very big on the Bible. We believe Jesus had an insanely high view of Scripture as inspired by God and thus authoritative over the lives of disciples of Jesus. And we agree. Go figure. We agree with Jesus. But we also acknowledge the fact that the Bible was written in a very different time and place in languages that most, if not all of us, do not read or speak. The Bible is a work of art, thus very complicated. It's a story. Most of it, believe it or not, is poetry. There's also history and narrative and teaching. There are even dead genres of writing that make up significant sections of the, this library that we call the Bible, stuff for which there's no modern parallel. All that to say, anyone who wants to honor the text has to enter into the often complicated process of interpretation. We all have to do it, and we can do it. We may be more removed from the time and place of the Bible than ever before, but we also have more access to resources that help us interpret the Bible than ever before. There are centuries upon centuries of scholarly work, linguists, archaeology, theology. There are commentary, commentaries and books and podcasts, amazing resources, things like the Bible Project. If you don't know about that, go on YouTube and spend you know, the rest of your week watching Bible Project videos. Over and against... All the cultural pressure to budge or to bail, there is a wealth of amazing material urging us deeper into the historic, orthodox, apostolic movement of Jesus and the early church, which is what we are setting out to do here with this time in the scriptures. So let's do some work. Now, from the outset, I'll say this. Many modern readers are likely to cringe at phrases like, 
wives submit to your husbands, which is the first line in tonight's text. Or, you know, slaves obey your masters. Because we assume when we read it now that Paul is encouraging an oppressive power dynamic. But I'm about to argue that he's up to exactly the opposite. Look again at chapter 3, verse 18. Here's that line again. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, to understand what Paul means, we have to do some work building out a bigger picture for marriage that will color the rest of our passage. A little bit of work to do, but you'll be fine. So keep your finger or your bookmark here in Colossians 3, and then turn all the way to the left in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Yes, all the way to the left. First chapter in the Bible. Now, in this story, God is reaching the penultimate creation moment with his masterpiece, human beings. So look at Genesis 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, wild animals, over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Notice the wording. God said, let us make mankind in our image. Is God the Father talking to the second and the third persons of the Trinity, or is he talking to spiritual beings that we now call angels, part of what makes up what's called the divine council? We're not totally sure, but either way, from the beginning, God has acted in loving, creative collaboration of relationships to create more relationships. And notice, God creates humanity, male and female, so that they may rule. They, meaning male and female, he created them. Notice the text does not say, he created them so that the male may rule. From the very beginning, both men and women equally bear the image of God, and both men and women equally share in the divine mandate to rule over God's creation as image-bearing co-collaborators. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 2, and let's read beginning with verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that word helper can be misleading in English because depending on the reader, it can accidentally imply subordination, as in the help, maids, secretaries. But the Hebrew word there is ozer, and it's used often in the scriptures to describe God himself. Helper, in that sense, fits really well. God is our helper, but there's absolutely no subordination. God is our helper, but he is in no way inferior to or beneath human beings. So there's absolutely no subordination implied by Genesis 2.18. Woman is entirely equal to man in value, image of God, and divine purpose. She is not his maid, not his subordinate, not the help. But then things go wrong. Human beings decide, you know, we'd rather not have God in charge. We'd rather be in charge, and the whole project goes off the rails. As a result, God has some pretty intense things to say about the consequences of this new thing called sin. One of them is in Genesis 3, verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband, God says to the woman, and he will rule over you. 
Now, here's two things you have to understand about this passage. Don't read it as God unilaterally imposing awful circumstances on women as a punishment for sin. That reading forces us into a bizarre take on the Bible in which God demands that we rise above circumstances that He imposed on us. And it reduces the New Testament's idea of healthy marriage into a tangle of contradictions. Instead, read this as God's lament for the way things will be in a broken world. Because of sin, the marriage dynamic that God created will also be broken. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. We actually see the same exact language repeated in the very next chapter when God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The image is of ownership and domination. So God was not saying to women in Genesis 2, you are going to pine after a man, but he is going to be your boss. No, God is saying that the marriage dynamic after the fall is now going to be reduced to a power struggle in its broken sinful state. That men and women in their brokenness will seek to dominate one another rather than embracing their God-given equality and divine purpose to partner with God as equals. They, man and woman, were created to rule, but now they will seek to rule one another. Okay, now turn back to the New Testament to a letter that we call Ephesians. Go ahead and consult the table of contents if you like. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians is a letter that Paul also wrote in prison and which also features Paul's instructions for Christian households, so to speak. But scholars argue that Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus was likely written with concern for many of the same exact issues that colored his letter to the church in Colossae. So it's a bit helpful for us in our reading tonight. Ephesians has these little helpful flourishes that will help us make a lot more sense of our text. So look at Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, so there's one of Paul's constant themes, love like Jesus loves. Simple enough. Then skip down to verse 21. Submit to who? Anyone? One another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then in verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, in Greek, there is no additional submit in verse 22. It's literally submit to one another, wives to your husbands, meaning verse 22 follows immediately from the paradigm established by 21. Submit to one another, wives to your husbands, and here's why. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, to read this the way Paul's first century audience would have read it, you need two pieces of clarifying context. First, power in the ancient world. In the first century, women were often understood as little more than property. Men had all the power in religious, political, and social systems, even more so than today. So Paul is writing into that paradigm, a paradigm taken for granted by his readers, and he does something beautiful and subversive. And that brings us to the second piece of clarifying context, how Jesus uses power. 
In Paul's analogy, the wife is the church and the husband is Christ. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians. What do Christians believe that Christ's disposition toward the church is? Here's a reminder from Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here it is. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is writing to husbands and wives in this hyper-patriarchal society of the ancient world with a radical opening statement, don't forget, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, you'll submit like the church to Christ. And in writing this, he subverts the ancient understanding of female submission by vesting it in the analogy of Jesus. How does Jesus treat the church? He did not use his power to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. He gave himself away for her sake. Wives will not submit to domineering monsters, but to men who humble themselves, who do not use power to their own advantage, given to them by society or anything else, but who empty themselves for the sake of self-sacrificial love. Wherever you find men seeking to dominate women, you are not seeing the kingdom of God but evil done against it. Think I'm reaching? Look at what Paul writes next in Ephesians verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Remember, this is all one unit of thought. Husbands and wives submit to one another. Wives, you'll do it like the church does for Jesus. Husbands, you'll do it as Jesus who gives himself up for the church. This is not a power struggle. It is not a question of who will be in charge. Instead, it is a race to give ourselves away to the other in loving mutual submission and self-sacrificial love. Okay, with all of that in your mind, let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. You guys still okay? Great, thank you. We're getting there. Hang in there. Now, let's read from Colossians 3 beginning with verse 18 again. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, with the greater framework of the Hebrew scriptures that informed Paul's theology and of the household regulations that Paul was working out with churches across the ancient Mediterranean, this reads really differently. Scholar Scott McKnight puts it like this. Wives serve husbands, and husbands sacrifice themselves for their wives because that is what love means. Superiority, power, and status have all been eradicated in Christoformity. A word like submit makes a lot of us squirm, understandably so. But I would argue this has a lot to do with the historic abuses of the Scriptures rather than what the Bible actually says. Look at it this way. Our portrait for loving, self-sacrificial submission is Jesus. In Jesus, God himself emptied himself for us, and we follow Jesus. 
Was Jesus weak or pathetic? No. Do we dominate or boss Jesus around just because he submitted to us? No, absolutely not. This isn't just a model for husbands and wives, but for all disciples of Jesus in all relationships. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, Paul is bringing this consistent and beautiful theology to bear on the family. Husbands and wives, submit to one another. Love one another. Give yourselves away for the sake of the other. Again, from McKnight. Instead of grounding the instruction to the wife in her husband's authority and power and leadership or status in a hierarchy, the grounding is radically otherwise. It is grounded in the Lord's way of life. It needs to be noted again that the husband is not instructed to lead his wife but to love her sacrificially. The term submit is used for all Christians, indicating boldly that even this instruction to wives has nothing to do with ontological status or inferiority, superiority, or hierarchy, but with a Christoform life expressed in the relationship of Christian wives and husbands. Now, let's use this broad concept to read the rest of our text. Colossians 3 verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, for they will become discouraged. Now, of course, Paul is assuming Christian parents that will not ask anything of their children that require disobedience to Jesus. Remember, he's writing to a church, and this is a general rule. It doesn't, you know, account for any of the little specifics that might come up. And this isn't exactly a controversial or groundbreaking thing to say that children should obey their parents and parents should not be harsh with their kids. But it's interesting that in context, Paul is infusing even the assumed dynamic between children and parents with the same self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Parents are to ask for obedience from their children, but they do so without being harsh or cruel or domineering, without flexing their authority, so to speak. And have you noticed that in both the cases of wives and husbands and now children and fathers, Paul asks for submission and obedience, but then he countercommands the husbands and fathers. He says nothing about their inherent authority or their leadership or that they're the boss because they're male. Meaning, Paul doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands. And husbands, be the boss, rule over your wives. Paul doesn't say, children, obey your parents. And parents, demand your children's obedience via your authority. Instead, in both cases, the complementary command is emulate Jesus. Love, be gentle, do not embitter, give yourselves away. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the leader. M.T. Wright summarizes the whole idea like this. The parent's duty is, in effect, to live out the gospel to the child. That is, to assure their children that they are loved and accepted and valued for who they are, not for who they ought to be, should have been, or might, if they would only try a little harder, become. Obedience must never be made the condition of parental love. A love so conditioned would not deserve the name. When the parent is obedient to the vocation of genuine love, The child's obedience may become, like that of the Christian to God, a glad and loving response. Okay, now we've got one more weird thing to deal with, and then we'll end. Look down at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do not 
and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work with it with all your heart. Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. If anyone does wrong, uh, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, for there is no favoritism. And then finally, chapter 4, verse 1, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Man, it was a long week getting through this teaching. Let me tell you, my God, you finish the whole wives submit, which is the first line in the teaching, and then you hit, oh, you're like, okay, we've worked that out. Slaves obey. Man, deep breath. Once again, we need a, a couple of components of clarifying context to get to the heart of Paul's idea. This is what we call authorial intent. What did the author mean to say to his original audience, not just how we hear it with our modern ears? First, slavery in the first century was not the same as American slavery or the modern slavery still in progress all over the world through the sex industry and human trafficking and pornography, forced labor, child labor, sweatshops, or any such satanic system. Uh, One of my grad school professors compared slavery in the first century to something like uh, an extreme version of indentured servitude, or he used to always say working for Dell in Oregon, whatever that means. (laughs) Apparently, you guys get it. Somebody gets it. Or it just sounds funny, because I did the same thing in class. He's like, I was working for Dell. (laughs) I was looking around the room. Anyone? No? Anyone else get it? Thus, slavery is slavery. There's no softening it to the point of pallet palatability, but it's not exactly the same thing that we think of when we hear the word. Thus, one of the resounding questions modern readers bring to the New Testament is why in the world does Paul not explicitly condemn the institution of slavery? So here's what we have to get. Our paradigm as modern Americans exposed to Christianity is of the ugly thing that passes for Christianity. I would argue it isn't. But it has a tremendous amount of socio-political power. But Paul is writing to a beleaguered minority. He is writing to oppressed people. The church was, for the most part, persecuted across the ancient world, and there were barely any of them at this point in the story. So few that at this point, they have no cultural sway. It would have made no sense for Paul to direct the church to overthrow the institution of first century slavery. They had no power to do so, and it would have violated their kingdom call to live quiet lives of nonviolence. So instead, Paul does something even more intelligent and even more subversive. He creates new paradigms for relationships between slaves and masters. Rather than going straight for the system, which was unrealistic and foolhardy, Paul goes for the hearts of people to steward a new way of life. Look at how Paul talked about social dynamics. This is from Galatians. In Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul means when he writes in Colossians 4.1, Masters, you know that you also have a master in heaven. Again, the person who has the societal advantage, the person who has all the power, is being called to emulate the one who has the true power over them, and they do this by giving themselves away. 
the further you go up the ladder, the more self-sacrificial love they find, which in turn seeds downward to those beneath them and on the margins of society. The one with all the power is being asked to initiate the dance of giving it away. Again, the message is submit to one another. Scholars argue that rather than writing to an oppressed minority and just a few of them and encouraging an impossible revolution against a massive system, Paul is instead writing to the church and creating a way of life that will inevitably dismantle the power dynamic of slavery between disciples of Jesus. If slaves and masters, like husbands and wives, are rushing to serve one another, if they're tripping over themselves to give themselves away, if they, in humility, regard others as better than themselves, as Paul commanded, then the typical relational dynamics of slavery will become increasingly untenable and will eventually fall away altogether. There will be, as Paul wrote, neither slave nor free. And there, here's an interesting piece of the backdrop of Paul's letter to the Colossian that proves my point. Spoiler alert, I wish I didn't have to do this, but in a couple of weeks we get to the very end of Colossians and we will read Paul saying, the one bringing the letter is coming with someone called Onesimus, who Paul calls our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you, the church in Colossians. Onesimus had been a slave of someone called Philemon, to whom Paul wrote this, I am sending him, Onesimus, the slave, who is my very heart, back to you. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Onesimus, once a slave, went on to become a leader in the church and an important figure in the early Jesus movement because the early disciples of Jesus were so eager to submit to one another, to lay down any claim to power that they had over the other, granted them by birth or society or culture, that those at the bottom rungs of the social ladder became equals, brothers and sisters in the way of Jesus. Phew, good grief. Okay, it's been a fire hose of information, I know, but here's why we're landing on all of this. Paul wrote all of that to a little church in the Roman Empire learning to practice the way of Jesus together. That church was called to exist in the culture, to have a presence there, not to hide from it. But they were also called to holiness, to be unique and set apart, dedicated to something else. And they were being taught to ask a new question, not how do we get more power, but how do we give our power away? The ancient world was not unlike the modern world in that it was marked by a desperate, bloodthirsty struggle to seize control of power, both on the macro and micro level. Relational power, economic power, social power, cultural power, even spiritual power. Then, like now, emperors and politicians struggle to maintain a death grip on their power to rule. Then, like now, the rich wanted desperately to maintain the power of luxury afforded them by their wealth. And then, like now, those in positions of cultural privilege were wary to forfeit the power into which they had been born. And not a lot has changed. It's what causes societal panic over political elections, that what makes 
It's what makes some white people panic when they hear the word privilege. It's what compels internet hysteria and social media backbiting and violence in the streets and capital riots. And I don't mean to dive even deeper into hypersensitive topics, but we've come this far, so we might as well go for it. Think of all the ugly, mean-spirited bickering we've been subjected to since the winter of 2020 over the coronavirus, COVID-19, and lockdowns, and quarantine, and masks, and policy. And don't get me wrong, it has been a massively confusing, frustrating, and painful time for just about everyone. But so many of the flailing meltdowns and screaming outbursts seem to amount to tantrums over who has the power. Someone tells the public, hey, wear masks. It might keep people from getting sick. And the public reacts in one of two ways. One, they shout back, who says? You can't make me. What about my freedom and my rights? I don't believe you. Prove it. I won't do it. You can't make me. Why? Why react this way? Why not? Oh, it might help. Sure. No big deal. Or alternately, they react by saying, make these primitive cave people wear those masks. These moronic hillbillies. Shame them. Silence them. Destroy them. Why? Why react this way? Why not? You know, this is an insane time with a lot of confusion. People are hurting and scared and freaked out. We should probably work to understand one another, to be patient with one another, and to forgive one another. We are being force-fed a deeply American narrative about power. Who has it, who doesn't, and what must be done to seize it. I think of Paul's paradigm for the marriage relationship. It encapsulates the whole thing wonderfully. Today, we're being given a story of extremes. You have the raging war between the toxic masculinity of the woman-hating alt-right men's activist trolls, and then you have the third-wave radical feminist hell-bent on tearing the male enemy from his inherently oppressive throne. And this narrative of extremes inevitably seeps into relationships between men and women and into marriages and families until terrified Christians, in their panic, react. The powerful men worry that the women are coming to dethrone them, and the radicalized women suspect that anyone with a Y chromosome is inherently evil. But Paul argues that biblical marriage is neither the oppressive patriarchy, patriarchy of fundamentalism nor is it the ugly political power struggle of progressivism that pits chauvinists against radicalized feminists because in both extremes, the question is about who has the power and how do we get more of it. But in Paul's paradigm, both men and women are rushing to give their power away. The husband who serves his master Jesus and does it well does not overpower, does not lord over, does not boss or domineer or violate the equality of his wife. He empties himself. He loves her, serves her, empowers her in her God-given calling. And the wife, the party with less cultural power or privilege then and now, responds to her husband's self-sacrificial love in turn by giving him the same. No one is reaching for power. Everyone is laying it down. This is not about sharing power, not about giving up life. It's about giving up life and love for the sake of the other. Paul envisions 
a radical alternative society where in the midst of a violent world desperate for more power, the church will become an incredible outpost of self-sacrificial love in which even the power dynamic between slaves and masters is being leveled by the eagerness of Christians to value others above themselves. And that little outpost of incredible self-effacing love then goes out into the world demonstrating a different, more compelling way of life, and it grows. There is a better way, and everything changes. If we really allowed Paul's words to form us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others, not qualified, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. If we recognize this as what God has done for us in Jesus and what we are privileged to do for one another in response, what would change? Could things like racism or sexism survive under a teaching like this? Could greed or could isolation, could flakiness, how could one possibly keep up the passive-aggressive shame tweets and venomous Instagram comments when they truly value others above themselves, even those they think of as below them? Would we be able to worry about whether or not we're getting enough money, whether or not someone else is getting too much? Could anyone really pitch a royal fit about their own precious rights if they were constantly aware of the fact that God gave up all His power and glory in order to become nothing and to die for our sake? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves. If we accept Paul's command... Submit to one another. Value one another above yourselves. What changes? What has to change? Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to tell us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.